0: Good morning, everybody. Once again, can you hear me? No? That's all right. We got options. Some switching to guns. All right, good deal. Ooh, can we kill the reverb? That's a little bit much. What happened? Oh, there we are. Oh yeah. No, I'm I'm good with the reverb now. I've. Oh no. Okay. No. All right. That's fine. Without it, it's fine. I was thinking it'd be like one of those cathedral things we could imagine. God, we could do all that. All right, this is twisted. Um, While we're getting ready to dive into this fascinating sermon, I want to remind you that you have several means, that was a joke, several means to continue your worship toward the Lord through giving. You can go to rivervalley.church and give through our website. Ten-digit text to give number is available ordinarily, although it's not on the screen this morning. Um, what else? Snail mail works. Those of you here in person, there's a box on the wall. Appreciate your continued faithfulness, and um, I do want to say a special greeting to our online community. We want to say that you are uh, you are welcome. We're glad that you're here. Glad that you're with us. Um, for lots of lots of reasons, we hope that these experiences are meaningful to you and to your family um, we're glad you're here i you know I want to say that um and I don't know if this sounds like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but you are entirely welcome online We're glad that you're here and I also want to say that um we love for you to gather here with us in the flesh um, and and uh, you know, and again, I, I mean that on both sides with all sincerity, right? So you're, you're totally welcome to gather with us online. Um, and, and for some of you, you're just more comfortable there. It's not a, it, it may not, it's for some of you, I'm thinking of, um, it's not a COVID thing for you at all. It's, I'm just more comfortable gathering online cause people can be scary. <laughs> like I get that too. We, we get that. Um. Uh, so that's legit. And then again, on the other side of my mouth, oh, are we, is this, is this, oh, oh, look at there. Okay, good. Hands free. Um, I forgot what I was saying. Oh, I just, you know, and so to that, again, back to the other side, I just want to say that, um, and this sounds cliche almost, but... Our endeavor is to not be scary. (laughs) Our endeavor is to be a people who are not of the scary sort. Um, And so uh, there again, your presence in the flesh um, is meaningful as well. Uh, Have y'all heard this new song by Adele? Oh man, I don't want to try to reproduce the lyrics, but when she gets to that line, go easy on me. I just feel like I mean besides being an incredibly gifted vocalist I just feel like this woman is prophesying to our culture Go easy on me isn't that exactly the word we need to hear I mean it's like when that song comes on I just turn it up cuz I just think she's prophesying I mean that's the word we need go easy on me can we just can we just go easy on one another You know what I mean It's like so you know when she says it, I'm thinking yeah, I, I'm going to go easy on you and I'm going to go easy on him and I'm going to go easy on her and I'm going to go easy on him and her and, and I want him and her to go easy on me. It's like, that's just, to me, that's just grace, you know. So I think Adele is just taking us all to church on that one. Um, okay, so I love this study series called God Talk. <clears throat> and it's one that we come in and out of over time. Uh, so much of um, our faith and the practice of our faith, um, you know, and, and then for good reason, Jesus said, come follow me. And so, so much of it is, you know, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And so we end up talking about the do, the how, the, you know, how do we go about what is, what is, what is the doing of the Christian faith? What does that look like? And that's legit. Um, But then there's another level on which, um, you know, not only do we walk the walk or at least endeavor to walk the walk, we're also talking the talk, you know? So like, what what are we even talking about when we're talking about the faith? And sometimes we use religious language and these words just kind of roll off the tongue, whether it's on you know, on Sunday or even around the water cooler at work, perhaps, in a, a faith conversation in whatever context, you know, these words that are part of our speech. Um, and so it's a legitimate question to say, okay, so when we use this language, right, like like this, this Christian lexicon, what do we mean? Like, what, are these, what do these words mean? So I, I love this, this series, God Talk. And so today, we're going to talk about a word that is, <clears throat> of course, central to faith and the faith language. Um, we just sang about it. We're going to talk about salvation. Like, like, what do we mean when we use the word salvation? Like, what neurons fire <laughs> in your mind? Um, when we use the word salvation or its cognates, save, saving, savior, right? Like, so what, what, does, what does all that mean? And I want to suggest, like at the outset, that, um, you know, I think just <clears throat> based on my own experience and observation, that the common sort of understanding of this word when you use the word saved or salvation, typically what we mean when we say the word or what we think when we hear the word, is this idea of being forgiven by God, accepted by God despite my sinfulness. Um, and now I am assured that, you know, when I die, I will experience a pleasant afterlife. That to be saved means to have my sins forgiven, be accepted by God, and with the expectation of going to heaven when I die. So, to squish all that down, I think the common understanding of the meaning of this word could be squished into the knowledge that I'm going to go to heaven when I die. This tends to be the common understanding of the meaning of this word, both for believers and non-believers. What does it mean to be to be saved? Have my sins forgiven, go to, head, go to heaven when I, die, when I die, and I even as we 've done before in this in this study series, you look up the word salvation" even in the dictionary, and you find meanings not altogether different from from that and and we reference the dictionary in this study series not because it 's necessarily a source of truth but because it is a record of what words typically mean in our culture right so the dictionary meaning of the word salvation from the Oxford Dictionary. Deliverance from sin and its consequences believed by Christians to be brought about by faith in Christ. There you go. From Webster's Dictionary. Deliverance from the power and effects of sin. There you go. That's, that's kind of what I said, pretty much, sort of. Maybe not, but kind of, mostly. Um, and again, I'll suggest that in my own experience and observation, Many view this as more or less, salvation that is, a spiritual transaction that occurs at a particular moment in time as a result of an expression of faith in Christ, perhaps some kind of prayer. I mean, that's the, thats the I don't know, the sacrament that we evangelicals kind of created, right? We sing just as I am, someone walks the aisle, and then you pray the prayer, like that's the that's the kickstart. That's the moment of, of salvation, the common practice. And by the way, an altar call, that was invented um, in America in the 1830s. There was no such thing prior to that. But nevertheless, it's kind of has become the ritual, the, the sacrament of our typical understanding of the meaning of salvation. And by the way, because it's relevant to our study where we're going the altar call was, I don't, we, don't, we can't say that it was invented by, but we can say that it was certainly popularized by the uh, evangelist Charles Finney. He was a Presbyterian revivalist uh, here in America in the 1830s, um, and many people remember Charles Finney, and for good reason, for his role as a revivalist um, and popularizing the practice of the altar call, Charles Finney. Uh, really made that common practice in America for preach a rousing sermon and then invite people to stand up and walk down front as a, you know, an indication of their desire to, you know, make a confession of faith in Christ. Um, But what people, many people don't remember about Finney is that Finney's practice was indeed to invite people forward for prayer. Um in marking the beginning of a new life in Christ. But what many people don't remember about Finney is that what Finney had people do immediately after praying the prayer in the altar call, he had people exit stage left um, uh, and sign them up for participation in the abolitionist movement. And so for Finney... Uh, you know, and so again, you know, there's an irony there, right? Like, so, so on the one hand, what people remember about Finney is this kind of transactional, invisible, I have my sins forgiven and now I'm going to heaven when I die. But for Finney, in, in actual practice and experience, it was far more than that. It was like, okay, faith in Christ, then come on, let's get with it. You know, let's begin to do something to bring redemption into the world. Uh, so that's a beautiful image And it is relevant for where we're going this morning. All that to say, obviously, salvation is central to our language. It's central to Scripture, central to um, our story. And it is, again, commonly understood to be this spiritual transaction that results in the expectation, the assurance that I'm going to heaven when I die. But, everybody, there is so much more so much more to the meaning of this word, the biblical understanding of this word. In the Bible, and here's where we're going this morning, in the Bible, salvation refers to the total flourishing of all creation, including human beings, both individually and corporately. You may be surprised to learn That in the Old Testament, salvation never refers to an afterlife, never. Salvation in the Bible, in the Old Testament, salvation always refers to something real, tangible, experienced here and now, or at least, you know, in the coming time, um, embodied salvation, in in the Old Testament, that is. Um, And so, we're going to look at several angles of that this morning, but just to say, And here's my plea. This richer, fuller meaning and understanding of salvation, it matters seriously. It matters tremendously. Because when salvation is reduced to this afterlife concern, then what happens is the healing and wholeness, the flourishing of the here and now, tends to get elbowed out of the concern. Um, and it tends to get elbowed out of our, our dream, our hope, our like what are we doing here as, as followers of Christ? As someone has said, the surest way to anesthetize a teaching is to spiritualize it and ship it off into some ethereal afterlife. But on the other hand, when salvation is reconstituted, as a, a here and now, a flesh and bone, uh, understanding and meaning and expectation. Then it regains its, its full and robust transformational meaning and effect. Um, and so, and again, let me just make one other angle before we, before we go further into the specifics. But think about what happens when our idea of salvation is squeezed into this meaning of a, the expectation of a pleasant afterlife, <coughs> then think about what happens to the entire word family when we do that. Right? Like, so if my understanding of salvation is this invisible transaction that grants expectation of a pleasant afterlife, think about what happens to the other words in the word family, like the word save or or get saved. Like think about what hap- What just happened to that word, get saved. That meant have this invisible experience that assures you of that someday you'll have a pleasant. Or think about the word Savior. Mm. Like what does Savior mean? If my understanding of salvation is this invisible transaction that assures me that someday in the future when I die, i have a pleasant afterlife. Then what does that mean that the Savior, the one who, ah. You feel how sad that is, how, um, and I don't mean to denigrate the expectation of a pleasant afterlife. That's fantastic. It's just that it's too small. It's just that it's too limited, right? So what we want to do this morning is bring the fullness back to not only our language, but to our understanding, right? And so... Just as in every case, you know, a word—the point of a word—is never the word itself. The point of a word is what it points to. You know, um, what it, what it points to in our imagination, what it points to in our expectation, and then more broadly in our conversation, and more broadly in our hoping, in our in our um, what we reach for. Right? So, so when we when we expand our understanding of this, the meaning of the word salvation. The point is not just to alter our vocabulary, but to alter our, our hope, alter our prayer, alter our expectation, um, alter um, not only what we think, but what, what, how it is that we go about living this faith. And it's the same with the word salvation. So to say where we're going here, in the Bible plainly stated salvation is about much more than sin and forgiveness in the Bible salvation is about much more than heaven or hell in the Bible once again salvation points to the total transformation and complete flourishing of individuals of society and of creation itself In the Bible, plainly stated, salvation is about the transformation of our lives and of our living together. It is a giant, giant word. Here are some stats before we look at some examples. The word salvation and its word family appear in the Bible about 500 times, depending on the English translation you use. The word salvation occurs about 120 times, its cognates, save, saves, saved, etc., appears about 300 times. Um, Savior in the Bible appears about 40 times. Roughly two-thirds of the occurrences are found in the Old Testament, roughly one-third are found in the New Testament. And again, as it is used in the Bible, the word salvation is rarely about an afterlife. In the Old Testament, salvation never refers to an afterlife. In the New Testament, salvation does occasionally refer to an afterlife, but the vast majority of uses even in the New Testament, it does not refer to an afterlife. The normal meaning of the word and its word family as it appears both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, again, points to transformation in this life. So that said, let's look at some of the ways for how the word salvation and its cognates are used in (coughs) Scripture. The first is this. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. The first is this. Salvation, when it appears in Scripture, it means liberation from bondage. And this we get from the Exodus story, which is, for Israel, the founding story of Israel, from the Exodus story. It is their primal Narrative and salvation, the word salvation appears at the apex of the Exodus story. <coughs> Here it is, Exodus 14. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians. Now get the picture. You saw the movie. Charlton Heston did a great job. Liberation from bondage. Out from under Pharaoh's thumb, you know, that rescue, that whole story, that moment is referred to as salvation. Exodus 15. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider, he is thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Salvation the Exodus story, liberation from bondage. Again, from Hosea, reflecting on this, yet I have been been the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me, there is no Savior. So God identifies himself as a Savior of Israel, and he's referring to Rescue from bondage, from slavery. Psalm 106, again, they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things, where? In Egypt. He is the Savior who rescued them from Egypt. That is comprehensive liberation. Liberation from political bondage, economic bondage. All of that was bound up in the Exodus story. Religious bondage, on and on you could go. So the Egypt story is referred to as salvation. God is referred to as Savior who rescued Egypt from bondage. Isn't that what we're hoping for too? In various ways. Next, salvation is referred to, it means return from exile. And here we're fast forwarding now to the 6th century or so B.C. where the Babylonians had conquered Jerusalem and took many of the survivors into exile in Babylon, where they were oppressed, again, impoverished, powerless, stripped of not only their freedom, but their identity. About 50 years passes, and Persia conquers conquers Babylon, and the prince of Persia inherits the Israelites as a result of that conquest. And then more time passes, and the king of Persia decides he's going to allow the Israelites to go back to their homeland. The second half of the book of Isaiah um, refers to all of this, beginning roughly with Isaiah chapter 40. And he gives us a profound, poetic, prophetic vision of this return from exile. And here's how that section begins. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. That's the beginning of that second half of Isaiah where he Uh, is meditating on this whole event of the Israelites' return from exile to their homeland. Well, the point of all that is to say these lines of the book of Isaiah are just peppered with the word salvation, save, Savior, this whole word family. Here's some examples, Isaiah 45. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. He's referring to the exile, to the return from exile. One half of all the occurrences of the word salvation in the entire Old Testament are found in this second half of Isaiah, in this section where he's referring to the return from exile. Here's another example at length, Isaiah 43. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are precious in my sight and honored. And I love you. I am, he says, your Savior. What are we doing here? Well, we're expanding our understanding of the meaning of this word beyond the constricted idea of the expectation of a pleasant afterlife. This is talking about real return from exile and return home. I will protect you when you pass through the fire, through the floods, etc. for I am your Savior. Notice, God is the Savior. He's saying, I am present with you on the journey. My love is with you. Uh, So salvation means release from captivity, God's presence on the journey of return, God's comfort and assurance, God's abiding love all along the way. Think about that. That's what salvation means in Scripture. Next. Salvation means rescue from peril, and we're talking real peril here. When we get to the Psalms, this is the primary meaning of salvation. Rescue from threat, from peril, from mortal danger. The word salvation appears in the Psalms more than any other book of the Bible. Sometimes the word salvation refers to the rescue of an individual. Sometimes the word salvation refers to the rescue of the corporate whole, of the community. The people, the nation being rescued from threat. And again, in the Psalms, the threat might be an imposing military threat, maybe a physical illness, or just wicked people in general. Here are some examples Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 51. Restore to me, we love this one, the joy of your salvation. Psalm 65, by awesome deeds, you answer us with deliverance, O God, of our salvation. You are the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas. But I'm lowly, here's Psalm 69, but I'm lowly and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, protect me. This is, this is hopefully the goal here is mind expanding in terms of what we mean when we say the word salvation, what we think when we hear the word salvation—we um, don't have notes today, but there's a bunch. You can just go through the Psalms and find the word salvation, or it's or it's word family, <coughs> and you can see you can see that again and again and again. Uh, the reference again is is not to some expectation of a, of a pleasant afterlife, but it is deliverance, protection from threat, from peril in the here and now. And then we get to the New Testament. And all of these meanings of the word continue in the New Testament. Liberation from bondage, return from exile, protection from threat. Um, <coughs> even in the New Testament, to be saved is to be delivered, is to be rescued from whatever threatens us or whatever... Ails us or ills. Salvation is about, continues to be, about being rescued from exile and brought into a new, transformed for the better life of union with God. That's the general theme. Um, In the specifics, particularly in the Gospel of John, and this is, I think, um, (coughs) maybe less appreciated reality. But for for John, particularly in the Gospel of John, salvation, the effect of the Savior again and again and again is uh, from blindness to sight or from darkness to light. And you can write from his prologue. I mean, John, John, he's a helpful writer because he sets the whole agenda for his uh, gospel in the first chapter. Um, and he says that the Word was made flesh and he entered into the darkness. And so he's tipping you off as to his understanding right from the beginning. That the effect of the Savior is to enter into the darkness and turn the lights on. So that's what John is saying, what the Savior does. And so it, it, once you like soak in John's prologue, then the, the anecdotes, the stories, the vignettes that he tells about Jesus fall right in line with that. Think of how many times in the Gospel of John he'll tell you about a miracle of Jesus giving sight to a blind person. Well, what's he saying? He's saying this is it, it's a, it actually happened. Jesus restored physical sight to the blind. But what he's saying is this is what the Savior does. Always he brings sight to the blind. Uh, both physically and metaphorically. So uh, it goes on and on, particularly in the Gospel of John, but also in the other Gospels as well. Here's one from Mark, chapter eight: "Do you have eyes, Jesus says, and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear?" Here's one from Matthew: "Woe to you, blind guides!" That's what he calls the religious leaders again and again. You are blind. You are blind guides of the blind. And if one blind person guides another, you'll both fall into a pit. And then from John chapter 9, Jesus said, I came to this world for judgment so that those who do not see might see and so that those who do see would become blind. So salvation means I went from darkness to light. I went from a place where I couldn't see to a place where I, I could. And, and, you know, just to unpack that, again, that's like artistic language. We could press it a little further we could say uh, that the effect of the Savior is to bring people from a place of delusion to a place of clarity. Right? So I was deluded. I was walking in confusion that I thought was wisdom. Right? Um, and the effect of salvation is that that delusion, that confusion uh, was removed from my my blindness was removed right so we could use all that all that language together but that's what salvation is moving from delusion to clarity moving from confusion to wisdom and then also in the new testament salvation often refers to from death to life and this is in <coughs> in the gospels as well as in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Matthew chapter 8, follow me, he says, and let the dead bury their own dead. Now that stings a little bit. It's kind of like, you could be offended by that, right? Kind of rude, sounds like. But it's ultimately, <laughs> it's ultimately a word of hope. Um, Jesus is offering this particular individual that he's talking with. He's offering him a way of leaving death behind and following him into new life or new way of life. Same kind of idea from the Apostle Paul, Galatians 2. He says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. So from death to life. Another meaning of the word salvation in the New Testament. From sickness to wholeness. Again and again, of course, in the Gospels, we find Jesus healing physical illness. That's like story after story after story. But what's missed by English readers readers of the Bible is that the word for heal or healing, or healed, Um, it's the same word in Greek, the same word for salvation. So Jesus, we read in English, Jesus touched a leper and healed him. Uh, But for readers of the New Testament in its original language, Jesus touched the leper and saved him. It's the same word. A woman touches the hem of Jesus' garment, and she's healed. Yes. But for readers of the New Testament, in its original language, the woman touched the hem of Jesus' garment, and she was saved. That's beautiful. And this really shouldn't come as too much of a surprise for us, because even in English, the word salvation comes from the Latin word salve, which is to heal, or a healing a healing ointment. So salvation, all that to say, salvation means healing physically, emotionally, socially. Salvation is the healing of our wounds, the transformation from diseased to wholeness. That's what salvation means. The word is soteria or so would be the what would that be? The verb. Soteria would be like the noun or its noun, noun family. It means to save, to rescue, to heal, to preserve, to protect. It means flourishing. That's what soteria and its word family in Greek, what they mean. It means from a mess to flourishing. That's what soteria means. But more specifically, we can talk about salvation and its New Testament usage to mean from fear to trust. (coughs) And really, throughout the Bible, the calming of fear and anxiety is a theme over and over. Fear not. How many times do you read that? Fear not. Don't be afraid. Someone said, and I haven't bothered to count them, and I never will for good reason. Someone said that that phrase, fear not, uh, occurs in the Bible 365 times. And I love that. That's one for every day. And don't count them and prove me wrong there. I just like thinking that. Um, Luke 12, he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, (coughs) or about your body, what you'll wear. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. 1 Peter 5, cast all your anxiety upon him, for he cares about you. And I just want to slow down and interact with that a little bit. You know, there's an irony here to think about in the biblical use of the word salvation that it means the calming of fear or the easing of anxiety. What's ironic about that is that so often, back to that all too common usage and understanding of the word salvation where it means going to heaven when you die, please recognize that in that understanding of salvation, uh, fear is built into that. When when salvation is presented as going to heaven when you die, you need to tee up fear before you can sell that idea of salvation, right? You need to be afraid, very afraid, because right now your baseline is you're going to hell. And now I've got this neat thing for you called salvation. See what I'm saying? So the whole pitch is built on fear. It, it, it needs anxiety, right? Like that sales pitch for the understanding of salvation, it needs to first posit anxiety. It needs to make the hearer anxious before it even works. You can't even sell salvation as going to heaven when you die unless you first make the person afraid. See what I mean? It's just not good. (laughs) It's just obviously off the rails. You know what I mean? So salvation actually means from fear to trust, from actual fear, from real fear to trust. Um, And then the last few that we need to talk about, and I hope that even already... um, we're experiencing this sort of expansion um, of our thinking, which again, the implication is if we expand our thinking, then we expand our speaking, and we expand our praying, and we expand our hoping, and we expand our living, and we, right? See what I mean? That's the point of this. Um, but we need to do this conversation justice. <clears throat> we need to talk about justice. (laughs) Uh, There are meanings of the word salvation that go beyond personal meanings, right? Like so, like everything we talked about so far could be thought of as more or less personal meanings of salvation. But in the Bible, salvation is much more than personal. In the Bible, salvation is also, it's social. It's, if we could use the word, it's political. And I don't mean partisan, but you know, when I use the word political in this context, I'm thinking of Like in Greek, the word for city is polis. That's where you get Minneapolis, right? So polis means the city. And so politics, properly speaking, is how the city organizes itself, the shape or the shaping of of the city. And salvation wants to be a part of that conversation as well. So uh, in the Bible, salvation refers to uh, the transformation from a state of injustice to a state of justice. And in the Bible, the primary justice issue is economic justice. The vision of justice in the Bible is that everyone would have enough, enough land, enough food, enough protection, and not merely as a result of charity, but as a result of how the system works, that the polis, the city, the society is organized in such a way that everyone has enough because of how the society is put together. And we find this, of course, most pointedly in the prophets, Israel, Israel's prophets. Micah chapter 6, he has told you, O mortal, what's good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy. <coughs> and to walk humbly with your God. Another beyond personal meaning of salvation, from violence to peace. We're grateful for and we long for peace on any scale, personal peace, peace in our household, peace with our neighbors and coworkers. But the bold vision of the Bible um, is a society, a world, a planet at peace. And peace is ultimately, of course, about the end of all violence, the end of war. That's what the prophets were bold enough to dream of, to pray about, to talk about. Isaiah chapter 2. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, He will judge between the nations and will arbitrate for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Neither will they learn war anymore. Notice that. Isaiah says people are going to learn from the Lord. They're going to hear his instruction. And what's he going to teach? Take all your weapons of war and turn them into farming implements because you don't need them anymore. No more war. That's what the prophet said. And of course, Micah, the prophet Micah, he basically plagiarizes Isaiah and says the same thing, uh, has that same riff. And of course, moving to the New Testament, Jesus picks up this theme, Matthew 5, in his introduction to his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. Later he says, you've heard that it was said... Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Yes, sir, we've heard that said. We've lived that motto. He continues, but I say to you, love your enemies. What happens when that catches on? No more violence, no more war. He is, Luke says in his introduction to his gospel, Jesus is the Savior who brings peace on earth. Here it is from Luke chapter 2. Don't be afraid, for see, I'm bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. And suddenly there was, he says, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace among those who he favors. And of course, in the first century Roman Empire, which is when Christmas came, if you heard someone mention a Savior who brings peace on earth, you would know immediately who that person was talking about. Well, they're talking about Caesar. (laughs) Caesar is the Savior who brings peace on earth. That's the language of the empire used about Caesar, which makes it incredibly compelling that in this story of Jesus' birth, Jesus here is called the savior. And we're told that Jesus is the one who came to bring peace on earth. So first of all, this is subversive to the emperor and the empire. This is politically loaded speech here in Luke chapter two. But secondly, notice that this is subversive to the emperor's brand of peace. In other words, The way that the Roman emperor brings peace on earth is through coercion. In other words, the Roman emperor brings peace on earth because all of the enemies are squashed and ground into powder. That's how the Roman emperor brings peace. But Jesus is the Savior who brings real peace on earth. How? By rejecting violence. He taught that actually authority is this self-giving, self-emptying, sacrificial love and service of the other. So, Jesus is not just, he's not an alternative emperor. He's an entirely alternative vision of what peace is and how it is obtained. Jesus' vision of peace is not peace through coercion, but peace through justice and love. This is what Jesus talked about when he talked about the kingdom of God. It is God's dream of a healed and transformed world, a world of justice and peace. So there you go. There's kind of a quick scan of how it is that the Bible uses this word salvation. And again, it's, it's word family, save, savior. It's a massive, expansive idea. And then... You have this riff from the Apostle Paul where he says, Work out your salvation. I love that. What happens to that appeal? Energia is the Greek word. You recognize that Greek word, which is where we get the English word energy. That's the word that's actually used in that riff. Work out your salvation, energize your salvation. So what happens when now, hopefully, when you hear the word salvation, the neurons that fire in your mind are like way out there, right? Like from, from physical healing, emotional healing, relational healing, from, from injustice to justice, from, from bondage to freedom. I mean, just, and Paul goes now, energize your salvation. Wow. We got work to do. You know what I mean? We got some praying to do. We got some dreaming to do. We got some hoping to do. We got some projects ahead of us. And then I love this from Paul. This is late in the book of Acts in like kind of like the final scene that we have from Paul. And of course, a couple years ago, we did a whole study on the book of Acts, where we took, what, three years to go through the book of Acts? I probably preached on this paragraph for two months. I don't know. I love this. Acts 28. Um, Paul is recalling earlier words of the Jewish prophets. And he says, For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing, and they've shut their eyes so that they might not look with their eyes And listen with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, our English translators, helpful as they are, they use the word heal there. It's the same Greek word, soteria. So they had a choice. They could have said save, but they said heal. And I like that choice. And I would heal them. Let it be known to you then that this salvation of God has been... He's talking to the, um, the Jewish leaders in the community here in this, in this scene. But let, So he says, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. But I just want to pluck out for our purposes today this image. Where he says, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda. If they would have opened their ears and opened their eyes, they could have turned to me. This is the prophet speaking on God's, you know, first God, putting words in God's mouth. They could have turned to me and I would heal them. Turn to me and I would save them. And here, say, big, big save, right? Um, this is Massive. It's massive. So I want to ask a question. Don't answer, but this is for rhetorical effect. So let me ask the question. With all that said, let me ask this. It kind of becomes a cliche, I think. It's hopefully not. it's not anymore. But I want to ask the question. Are you saved? Are you saved? I'll answer. I'll give you my answer. And my answer is yes and not yet. Yes, God is my Savior right now. He has done all that is required for my healing and my transformation. He has welcomed me into this loving union with himself. He's made me aware of the Jesus in me, yada, yada, yada. Yes, right now, he is my comforter, my sustainer. He is the divine presence with me at every step, even in my darkest of dark times in my life. And also, I am being saved. God is working in me, in my emotions, in my spirit, in my mind, in my <clears throat> to heal my wounds, to enlighten my blindness, to vivify my deadness of heart and mind. He is sensitizing my stubborn ears to hear, right, and respond to his voice. So yeah, I'm I'm being saved. And also what's more is that there's more to come. I'm hoping to be saved. I'm hoping for salvation to come and keep coming. I'm looking forward to more and more of this sweet salvation that's still to come. In the seasons of life to come, I want to be saved. I want to be rescued. I want to be liberated. I want to be enlightened. I want to be, right, Like take all the whole list we just did. I want to be healed. I want to be transformed. I want to be enfolded into the divine, into the triune God more and more and more. There's a, I don't have an example of it, but among the icons of the early church, there's one that's rather famous, and it, it looks like. Um, When the three visitors came to Abraham uh, and he gave them, he set them down for a meal and fed them these three figures, (coughs) which we um, who know the self-revelation of God in Christ and appreciate the triune-ness of God, this icon for the early church um, became a, a visual for the Trinity. Maybe you've seen it. I wish I had an example Um, Well, it's neat about about the story of this icon, when you see it, you see these three seated at the table, but they're not spatially divided evenly like you would expect. That three people seated at a table might be divided in three equal spaces around the table. In fact, they're divided around the table in spaces that would look like three seats are taken of what could be four. And so as you look at the icon, you see these three seated, and the space that's open in the table is the space that's most uh, related to the viewer of the icon. And what's more interesting about the way this icon was originally uh, composed is that the earliest uh, example of this icon, there's a, there's a spot in the actual painting where there's no color in the on the, the space where the icon was originally, they call it written. We would call it painted because it's colored. But in the early church, they call it, you, you don't paint or draw an icon, you write an icon. And that's important language because they're intended to teach. Uh, but there's a space there where there's no color in the original uh, composition. And no one knows for sure, but the story is, that when the icon was originally composed, as it is, with these three seated at a table representing the Trinity, taking up not the full space around the table, but three spaces that could easily be seen as divided among four spaces and three are occupied. The space that's available is closest to the viewer. And then there's this, physically, there's a, there's a space where there's no color. looks like something was missing. Missing by the original writer of the icon. But the story is uh, that originally when the icon was written, the artist uh, attached a mirror there so that when the viewer of this icon of the Trinity sees this portrait of the Trinity, you also see yourself. And that's the gospel, that you have been enfolded into this divine dance of love among the triune God, and you have been incorporated into it. That's salvation. We have been drawn into this union with the triune God. There are more glorious vistas for us within this salvation, far more glorious than the definition or the understanding that many of us begin with. And so I'm not asking you to let go of what you came in with, but I'm hoping that you start to see that there's more, much more to this rich, full, biblical meaning of salvation. Everybody tracking? All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We're grateful for um, your salvation. Thank you for bringing to us an awareness of your presence with us, within us, among us. Father, thank you for drawing us into the love of the triune God. And I pray that even now, And in the seasons to come, you would bring us into the fullness, ultimately, of your salvation. God, Father, be our Savior. Comprehensively, totally, we say that we need you. We need your rescue. We need your healing. We need your salvation.